welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today I'm talking with Gavin Thurston, the DP of David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet. Uh, Gavin has shot plenty of other films with Mr. Attenborough. Um, you know, there's been things on his CV that I'm sure you've loved, uh, seen and loved. You know, The Blue Planet and whatnot. Colleges across America have loved uh, Gavin's cinematography. He also has this book here, uh, Journeys in the Wild, The Secret Life of a Cameraman, which... Um, is a, oh michael palin's got a pull quote on the back that's cool but yeah blue planet 2 planet earth 2 our planet gavin shot a bunch of stuff that um is amazing and i actually not knowing a ton about nature cinematography feel like i have just scratched the surface with this interview um so i can't wait to have gavin back on to uh chat more about it Um, Normally, I keep these intros incredibly short, but as this is the first time you're likely hearing from me, I figure we should take a quick moment to say, uh, hello, I'm Kenny McMillan. Uh, I'm a cinematographer out here in Los Angeles, and I host the Frame and Reference podcast every week over on the Frame and Reference podcast feed, wherever you listen to podcasts, you know, whatever your favorite app is. Um, As an example, you know, we had Josh Richards of Nomadland episode two. We had... uh, Tobias Schleisler, ASC, over, uh, he shot Maureen's Black Bottom. That was episode three. You know, we just came out with a bang. Um, we recently had Tim Ives, ASC, of Halston and uh, Stranger Things. That was a fantastic conversation. Uh, Chekhov Varisi, ASC, who shot them. Um, that was an amazing conversation. Loved that one. Um, we, the most recent episode as of this recording was Maria Rushi. Uh, she shot... Um, uh, Love in New York, as well as Shiva Baby. Uh, she's also an adjunct professor over at NYU, so that was very educational. We had Jenna Rocher. She shot the Billie Eilish documentary. That was another fantastic conversation. So we have DPs from all over the spectrum uh, on Frame and Reference every week on Thursday. So again, go subscribe to Frame and Reference um, wherever podcasts are distributed. Um, But you will also be getting one or two bonus episodes here on the Art of the Frame feed, so you can look forward to that as well. Um, Also, as a side note, I was the first one to have the Frame name, so uh, I'm taking credit for it. Um, But yeah, like I said, I normally keep these intros short, but as this is statistically the first time you're hearing from me, I figured it's good to take a quick second just kind of give you a quick rundown of the uh, process. These conversations are very informal, casual, but also um, educational and hopefully entertaining. That's the goal. So uh, yeah, without further ado, let's talk with Gavin Thurston about his work. The thing that I like to start everyone asking everyone is just how did you get started in cinematography? Were you always um, a visual guy, especially with in, in your career? Um, I don't think nature cinematography is necessarily someone's very first uh, idea. Yeah. Um, Well, I suppose at school, I was very interested in art, um, Mm -hmm. but I was pretty useless at it. I'm sure that's like most of us, you know, you've got this vision in your head of, you know, the Van Gogh flowers in a vase and you start to paint the flowers in front of you. And then you look down at the canvas and there's nothing like the thing you're trying to paint. And there was no, for me, it was really frustrating. There was no connection between, you know, what I wanted to put on the canvas and what I could imagine I was putting on the canvas. It was always like a child to just scribble on it. Um, and the great thing about photography is actually it's very easy. Uh, we all do it. We all have iPhones nowadays, you know, and we're always taking photographs and sharing them. And the nice thing about that is you can, you know, we're very visual, visual. I mean, as, as humans, we've got 
forward-facing eyes, um, stereoscopic vision and so on. Um, a lot of our memory is connected to, to vision. So we can share those moments by just taking a picture and sharing it. So I suppose um, the passion for photography started very early on because it was, to me, an easy, accessible art form. I mean, I started in the days of film um, uh, and obviously then moved on to digital uh, probably two decades later. Um, but equally, the connection with wildlife um, came from my grandmother. I mean, I only realised this oh, in the last sort of probably four or five years. I've recently written a book and it was in the writing of that book that these things kind of cemented. Um, and I realised that growing up, with, you know, spending time with my grandmother, who was a very keen amateur naturalist and passionate about birds and bees and flowers and trees and so on. And then, um, you know, this idea that you can take a picture of something, the two kind of slowly melded together. Um, and then, well, the last 37 years is history, really. Uh, that's been kind of the majority of my career. Yeah. Did you, when you were taking pictures, was there a specific style that um, you were drawn to? Was it, you know, uh, was it nature photography or when you were maybe shooting around with your friends or whatever, were you more into kind of like portraits? Did you have any... Um, sort of idols is the wrong word, but references growing up, like books that you enjoyed that you kind of drew inspiration from? Um, I think early on, it was more about the experimentation. And I liked, you know, a lot of people take a camera, they take the picture, they keep the face in the middle of the frame, click, that's it. Um, and I like the idea of playing around. What happens if you put the film through the camera twice? You know, what happens if you're in a dark room and you open the shutter and you flash the flash gun three times? And then when the negatives come back, you can have three pictures of the identical person in one frame and you've done it all in camera. So I kind of like taking it beyond, you know, as a creative tool, take it beyond perhaps what it was initially designed to do. Um, and then I think this, the first um, photogra uh, photographic book I bought was one called uh, Verushka. And uh, I think Verushka is the model and not the photographer, but basically it was a husband and wife or, you know, a, man, woman, boyfriend, girlfriend um, scenario. And what he would do is she would basically be naked and he would paint her um, against a crackling painted door frame or against a mossy oak tree and then take, then photograph it. And the book is these photographs of her, her body basically completely blended in with nature. Um, and again, I, you know, it was something completely new to me, just uh, this whole idea that it's not just for taking pictures. It was, I know it's a, a creative tool. Um, yeah, so very early on, it was kind of just experimenting and having fun with it. And I think that's where you, um, you find new ideas, really. Did you, when you were doing all that, did you find a couple of things that you still, to this day, like, uh, you know, lessons, I suppose, that you've learned in those experiments and maybe some things that you were like, I'm never going to do that again? Um, I think the lessons I've learned is don't follow rules. Um, you know, because if you follow rules, you end up with all the shots that everybody else is getting. And as soon as you bend or break those rules or do something weird, it's like, um, I mean, let's take that classic photograph we probably all know from the Vietnam War of that poor girl who'd just been napalmed. It was like a mm -hmm. six-year-old girl. Along. Apparently there was a, you know, eight or 10 photographers there taking that photograph. And that pho the photograph that we know is famous because he, he was the one photographer who dropped to one knee and got eye level with the girl. So, you know, he just did something slightly different from everybody else. And that's why his photograph is famous. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, the one, well, the lesson I learned and the one thing I would advise everybody else to do is never follow the rules. Uh, try and be inventive, try and do something different. You know, we, I'd like to be the person who everybody else copies rather than being the person who's copying everybody else. There's certainly, um, 
um, something to be said for, for not doing what everyone else is doing. I mean, um, I used to shoot concerts, uh, which is a certain type of wildlife. And, uh, you, uh, there was, you know, there'd be a handful of photographers around videographers, whatever. And the easiest thing to do, especially because most of you were all working for the same, you know, for me, I was working for the, uh, college, um, media, you know, they could just use it for whatever. And most of the other people were too. And so we would all be grouped up in the same, taking the same photos. And I'd be like, all right, well, I'm just going to go to the other side of the stage. Cause like what, but more broadly nowadays, uh, it does seem like, um, because filmmaking is so accessible, we are all sort of in, in a very large trend setting or uh, trend following, um, kind of river. Have you noticed that, uh, in your, in your work or in your, at your level? Yeah, I suppose one, well, I suppose all those, I mean, to get to a certain stage through, you know, as you develop your own style and so on, I think the first thing is you learn what the rules are. I mean, we all know about Fibonacci and the rule of thirds and front lighting or back lighting or side lighting or whatever. They're kind of just, you're learning the techniques, but I think once you know those, you then learn how to break them. Um, I think one thing which has come more prevalent in, well, in features and dramas and even in everyday news and natural history filmmaking um, is camera movement. And it's one thing that I think originally was kind of exclusive to Hollywood and the big budgets where you could have three burly guys who could lay a nice flat track and put a dolly on it and eat a donut and push it beautifully smoothly. Um, But actually with the advent of things like gimbals and lighter weight tracks and carbon fiber and, all these different things actually it means that actually a one-man band can achieve the same standards that hollywood or bollywood or those high-end um you know production areas are, are producing and so actually it's one thing to be able to move the camera smoothly and in a cinematic way but then the next thing is once you've learned how to do that technically is why are you moving the camera you know when do you choose to dolly in towards something when do you pull away say i'm the classic is a a graveside scene you know when it's almost like there's a spiritual thing. There's always a crane shot, you know, there's the last post being played or taps or whatever it is, and the camera will just pull away. And it's just one of those classic things that works. It's almost just like leaving people to peace or it's the symbol of the spirit drifting up into the heavens or whatever. So again, it's learning, you know, why you move the camera and when you move it and how you move it. Um, so once you've learned the rules and the technique, then it's actually how you apply it to the, the best effect. Where there's some... Uh... Well, not, it doesn't have to be what were, but, um, growing up or even now, are there films that kind of, uh, inspire you that, that, uh, maybe break the rules in a way that makes you get the fizzes as it were? Um, I don't, I don't watch a lot of films. <laughs> um, that sounds awful. I'm in the industry. Um, I, th- I think one thing is the more you watch, the more influence you are to copy somebody else. Hmm. And obviously, it's nice to know where you stand next to everybody else's films and so on. I think the one thing I've learned, actually, is the sadly, as a cameraman <laughs> or a DOP, um, the saddest thing is that the picture is not the most important part. Uh, it's the story. I was going to say, it's, it's the sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the sad thing is, yeah, the sad thing is, is, you know, I mean, look at YouTube. You can have a shaky iPhone shot of a cat falling off a TV and it'll get 50 million hits. It's the content that's important, not the quality of the image. Yeah. Obviously, if you can then do that, you know, with a beautiful, you know, 16-bit 4K um, camera and, you know, light it beautifully and the cat still falls off the TV, then maybe you can enhance that moment. 
Um, but yeah, the story is story is king. Um, and I mean, there've been quite a few. Um, I mean, Netflix, for instance, they've done quite a few kind of docudramas recently. And the most powerful thing is the story. And I mean, the you know, the one thing that grabbed me about David Attenborough's life on our planet is the story of a 93-year-old man and his life and how he's seen, you know, the planet change in in you know, like kind of four generations. But he's witnessed the whole thing. So that's that's what drives the whole thing. The images kind of just help illustrate the story. But yeah, as a director of photography, the saddest thing is the story is the most important thing. Well, the, not sad. realistic. <laughs> sure. Well, and I mean, I think that's less of a, um, certainly we can all get caught up in wanting to make pretty pictures, but I think uh, something that's the sort of the positive side of that is it gives you a guide to um, the story gives you a guide where instead of trying to make pretty pictures in a vacuum, you know, it might be that uh, the, the pretty picture that you're trying to make shouldn't be pretty. Maybe the story is it's needs to be messed up or, or, or whatever. It yeah, needs well, to be different than your idea. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, we do see that done to good effect. I mean, take something like saving private Ryan where they deliberately should, you know, that first, that opening scene, which is, it's quite traumatic to watch. You know, you watch that in the cinema with surround sound and the sound cranked up. It's, you really are there. And I think that's because in that really tense situation, that is how you would see that scene. You wouldn't see it clearly. You'd be, your head would be jerking around as things explode. And, you know, you probably, as you're running, you probably wouldn't get clear vision. Your vision would be clouded by fear and smoke and, you know, nerves and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, so I think you're right. There are times when you need to kind of grunge it up a bit. Um, but it's driven by the story. It's not a gratuitous, I don't think it's a gratuitous um, film choice. It actually matches the story you're trying to tell. And that's the thing, I think, with experience is learning when you muck around with it, when you have a beautiful locked-off shot. I mean, take something like, I mean, uh, that question you asked me earlier about films that influenced me, um, actually, Lawrence of Arabia was one. Sure. It still stands up now. I mean, I watched it about, I went and did a film in Egypt about um, uh, a woman going to, Egypt to race camels, race the locals on camels. And of course, there was the whole cultural mix of things, you know, women don't ride, ride camels and they don't race. Um, but anyway, just for reference, because we were going to be traveling through the Sinai Desert with camels and discovering the whole area, I rewatched um, Lawrence of Arabia and it's an amazing film. And in that, some of those shots hold for 40 seconds. And what's really clever about that is you think, you know, you're just looking at the scene, you think, yeah, mountain, desert, sand, well, whatever. And you're looking around thinking, okay, what's the, what's the director trying, you know, what's, what do they want me to see here? And then you notice a little wisp of smoke and you're looking around and you notice the wisp of smoke's getting bigger. And then as it gets bigger, you realize it's not smoke, it's actually dust. And then you see the horseman coming up over the hill and that whole shot just draws you in and in, instead of looking around the scene, you want to see who this guy is and what he's going to do. And it's a very, very, very powerful and very clever use of just a locked off shot. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, I suppose there are films which influence me, make me think about, you know, how you use the camera and how long a shot runs for and all that kind of stuff. There's, uh, there's definitely like a few people I've spoken to, um, you know, similarly weren't necessarily, uh, influenced by other films, but for instance, uh, music. Like so I, I know for I've had a hard time articulating this on this podcast. I'm going to have to dedicate an entire episode to me just trying to f figure out what I'm trying to say here. But like there's certain things 
whether it be musicians uh, or bands or the industry itself or choices you make when writing that have like almost one-to-one um, translated to my cinematography or, or my filmmaking. Have you noticed um, sort of a, a non-film analog that you, you kind of reach to uh, when you're creating a, a film? Uh, well, one thing, uh, I mean, I haven't done it for a few years, but one thing we used to do, I did it uh, first time was for one of the David Attenborough series, um, The Private Life of Plants which was, I think, eight 50-minute programs about plants. And you think, my God, that's going to be boring. <laughs> uh, but what's amazing is filming them in time-lapse and just seeing these amazing evolutionary traits that these plants have for catching flies or, you know, strangling other trees or whatever it might be. Uh, but again, plants don't really move very fast in real time, so you have to use time-lapse. Um, or to make a scene feel three-dimensional, we did a lot of, you know, we had to do a lot of camera moves. Um, and one of the things we had, it was the very the early days of uh, Jimmy Jib, if you've ever seen those um, cranes. I think they're all over the place now. But it was like in the first few years of Jimmy Jib being around. Anyway, uh, BBC bought one of these Jimmy Jibs for the production. And of course, really, it takes two people to operate it, unless you're really experienced. So I would operate the pan and tilt head and the producer or whoever would swing the back of the crane because in wildlife filmmaking, the crews are small. It's literally two or three people, generally. But to be able to coordinate those moves, we would play music and you would choose a piece of music that would get you both at the same pace. Um, and it was interesting how it really did gel us as a team. Um, I think the go-to thing at the time was Enya. Do you remember Enya? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Very kind of ethereal, but it was it was beautiful the pay, for the pace of moves through the, the scene. So music certainly influenced those shots. And obviously then... I mean, in wildlife filmmaking, generally the music isn't put on till the end. So the score is written to complement and enhance the pictures and it does it very, very well. Um, but even so, when you're shooting, you still need to have kind of a sense of pace to, to what you're shooting and the speed of moves and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so music can have a huge influence. Did you uh, give the editor like, hey, this is the song that we were pretty much dancing to? Can you, can you make yeah, something like this? Yeah, very early on we did talk about that. Um, so whether that, I, to be honest, I don't know whether that had influ any influence at all, but you might find just from the pace of the moves that there's a natural pace at which you would cut that, um, you know, those scenes. Sure. Uh, how is, because you kind of said it a couple, well, actually, it's, I guess this is a two-part question, but um, first part was going to be uh, how has how technology changed the way that you've made nature films? Because I, I suppose one thing that's kind of, that, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't shoot nature films. Uh, one thing that potentially is, is true. I feel is that all you really need is the camera and yourself. You don't need, like you were saying, a massive crew. So as camera technology has improved, do you feel like the product has improved or has your job gotten easier? Has it kind of changed as it stayed the same the whole time? Um, the job certainly hasn't got easier. I'd say it's got more complex, but mm. the results, uh, to get, more cinematic results um, becomes easier. So one of the biggest things, uh, you know, one of the biggest changes, I say, is gyro-stabilized technology. Um, so, and now we're using things like, uh, well, Cineflex aren't made anymore, it's brought out by GSS, but GSS, shot over, Ronin, gimbals, movies, all that kind of stuff, which means now, I mean, before, say you were gonna film a lion hunt, you'd think, right, the lion's there, the prey's there, you know, the lion's going to stalk. So if you sit with a lion and see it stalking, when it runs and hits the prey, it's going to be a mile away. So what you have to do is predict and you have to go and be 
slightly nearer to the prey so you get the shots of the lion coming closer and when it runs hopefully by the time it hits the prey it's not a mile away it's only half a mile away but of course now what you can do you put a you take a gss or a shot over or a ronin you hang it off the front of your safari jeep your toyota or whatever and now when that lion's walking you can be 50 or 100 meters back from it so you're not influencing the hunt you're not putting it off but now you can actually move through it and it's a much more I hate the word immersive, but it is a much more immersive experience. You are traveling with that lion and that, you know, pushing through the grass. So that one bit of technology means that we can now cover things you couldn't cover before. Because as I say, and particularly something like a cheetah hunt, you know, a cheetah does easily 50 miles an hour. You try and follow it at 50 miles an hour across African terrain. You're going to break springs, tires, wheels, you know, bury the nose into the, the Toyota into the ground. Um, But, um, we can, you know, we can do it now because you can you can hang these cameras off the front and you haven't got your eye to it. So you're not going to suck your eyeball out or whatever. Um, yeah. So I'd say gimbals have really, really helped um, move. And the other thing that's helped is LED lighting. You know, before to do slow motion of things, you you know, you remember, well, you, I don't, you're probably too young to remember, but. Oh, you, got, you had to use like a miniature sun. Yeah. I mean, tungsten, God, you'd, you know, you put a 10K. I mean, this is before HMIs, but tungsten was you know seven times the heat and uh the number of times i've i mean i did um a lot of research photography as well at the the first company i worked for um there was a thing there used to be a thing called a golf ball typewriter and a daisy wheel typewriter this is before inkjet and they were trying to analyze how they could make that typewriter go faster because they can make it go faster but then the print didn't line up so on the typeface the you know the capital letters would be lower and the small ones would be higher and so on so they got me to film it in slow motion and they could see what happened is when the daisy wheel swung round and the hammer hit it onto the paper, of course, if it swung around too fast, then the thing would bend. So when the hammer hit it, it wasn't lining up with the others. Uh, but doing that research photography and slow motion filming on film, I melted uh, God knows how many computer keyboards, uh, you know, um, uh, printing key, uh, um, machines and so on. But now with LED, you can pile the light on uh, and not melt things and not affect behavior of animals. Okay, it's bright. And the other thing, of course, is now we've got cameras like the, I know some of the Sony range where you can bump the ISO up to 100,000 ISO, uh, which means you can you know, reduce the light you put on way, way down um, and still get clean cinematic images. It's amazing. And um, you know, on the low light thing, you can take those cameras out at night now. I mean, there's been a few series out recently um, a night on earth. I think Apple have done one, Netflix have done one. Um, you can go and get full color pictures, video at night by moonlight. And it's extraordinary. So now that opens up a whole world of behaviors you can film. And the sad thing is it does now mean you can work 24 seven. Right. <laughs> you can't, oh, sorry, the sunset now heading to the bar. Um, you know, you can work through the whole night, but, um, no, so technology really has, um, you know, changed things. I think. Are you a big, like, sort of tech head or do you, or you just kind of get told when something new comes out and you're like, all right, let's use that. Um, I try and keep abreast of it. I'm, I'm getting old now and it's, uh, I mean, I hate to say it, it's kind of a struggle, you know, another new camera comes out and every three I mean, months. Yeah. I mean, every few months, the great thing is there's lots of really great, you know, geeky, knowledgeable nerds out there who, you know, are passionate about testing these cameras to destruction and how much noise they produce. So you can hook up on Vimeo, YouTube, and all the rest of it, and actually see, or on the camera forums, and um, you know people are sharing this information, which is great. Um, what I like to do then is actually 
take the camera and take the bit of kit and use it how it wasn't designed to be used. I mean, so for instance, um, the Cineflex, you know, before it got bought out by GSS, that was first used on um, in wildlife on planet Earth, right. uh, which was, what, 16 years ago now, maybe more than that. Um, and I believe we were the first people not to stick it on a helicopter, but to stick it on a, a you know, a vehicle instead. Um, you know, it was designed to hang off a helicopter, um, but we've repurposed it. I mean, the same with the, the shot overs and so on. They're regularly put onto snowmobiles, jet skis, boats, you know, not just helicopters um, and producing amazing stable images. So again, it's taking something and just thinking, you know, it's like if you go to Africa, a spanner isn't just a spanner, it's a hammer, it's a lever, it's a, you know, it's a prop, uh, it's all sorts of things. And I like that about the, the technology. So I do try and keep abreast of the technology, uh, but there's an awful lot of it now. Um, but I, don't, I mean, I, I, I presume the same for you. Are you a tech geek? Do you follow all this uh, stuff? Yeah, I, I mean, um, I kind of got into cinematography uh, coming out of being a computer nerd. You know, the uh, it wasn't the technology that excited me about cinematography, but I was already predisposed to being the aforementioned geek. So, um, yeah. And, you know, fantastic. Well, like you I have to thank them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I think more recently I've. Cause I learned, I learned uh, cinematography on like 16 millimeter film. So I'm, I'm kind of easy to please when it comes yeah. to, uh, I, at a certain point I do kind of fall into the, to the camp of like, let's get to filming the story. You know, that's at, like we were saying every three months, there's a new camera and it's just like, they're all great. They're all great. Like, what do you, what do you plan on? Cause that's the other thing about like these YouTube videos and tech nerds and stuff is they all start nitpicking. Oh, well, yeah. the tw- the 25,000 ISO doesn't look as good as the six. It's like, when are you ever, I mean, you might, but like for, for a commercial or, or a short film or whatever, you're probably not going to use 25,000 ISO. <laughs> and equally, I, I think the most important thing is actually, it doesn't matter how good those cameras are. It's fine pointing at a chart in a studio, but actually if you're outdoors and you're in natural light, say, I mean, the biggest difference is going to be, is it gray and flat light? Or is it beautiful, low setting sunlight, backlighting grass heads and animal fur and stuff? So it doesn't matter how good the camera is. If you've got really shit light out there, you're not going to get great images. Um, no, I agree with you. I mean, there's, there is a lot of nitpicking, really. And, um, you know, I mean, take something like an iPhone or a Samsung or whatever. I mean, people are shooting movies on those and getting amazing results. I would actually love your opinion on this because this is something that I saw um, recently on, you know, one of the websites, Twitter, something like that, where people were saying, you know, stop saying that we can make uh, a film on an iPhone. We can't. That's reductive and that's dismissive. No one's going to take you seriously. And then someone goes, well, what about rubber? And they're like, that doesn't count. Um, <laughs> and I can understand the argument that if it doesn't look professional, people won't take it seriously. But I think that's a little, that's maybe lazy is the wrong word. I don't want to be mean, but like get some better audio. Like you're saying, get some good lights. LEDs are cheap yeah. nowadays too. Try a yeah. little harder. Don't have the camera do all the work for you. You know, yes, you got to download an app or two to make sure that the iPhone doesn't just auto expose everything or whatever. Um, but yeah, what what's your kind of opinion on um, the acceptability of 
certain tools because I know in, in your career, I can't imagine people would be like, would you like to rent the Alexa? And you're like, no, I'd like a Canon XL2, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously it's, I think budget uh, controls a lot of, uh, of what you can use. Um, interestingly, in, in wildlife filmmaking now, the budgets are getting up and up and up. So now we do have access to GSSs and, you know, Alexas and Sony Venices and basically all the same tools that they're using for Hollywood. So mm. we do have them. And, and the, the cost saving is the fact that you only have two or three crew rather than four, four to eight hundred. So that's why, you know, you can make the budget go, even though it's a lower budget, you can make it go a lot further. Um, but equally, I mean, I get lots of, probably like you, I get lots of emails a week, people saying, oh, I've always wanted to be a wildlife cameraman, camerawoman, you know, I'd, you know, this is what I want to do, whatever, you know, what, what's your advice? And I said, well, you know, if the email's worded properly and engaging and so on, I said, well, just sh- send me a showreel and let me just have a look what, you know, what you do. And he said, oh, I don't have a showreel, I don't have a camera. And I said, uh, well, I notice you've, in your email footer, it says sent from my iPhone. So you have right. a camera. And they said, yeah, but it's not a proper camera. And I said, if you are passionate about photography, I mean, my my phone has got something like 50,000 photos on it. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you were passionate about photography, you'd be seeing everything as an image and everything you'd be experimenting with, experiment with the slow motion or the low light mode or time lapse. You'd be trying all sorts of stuff. So I, I think there's a lot of snobbery about camera. I mean, if you saw the kit that I use, I don't care what it looks like. You know, if, if I'm running the dolly on two bits of drain pipe in Africa, I don't care. Um, somebody else might only want the Dana dolly or only want the carbon fiber, you know, Kessler crane or whatever it is. I don't care if it gets me the shot, you know, there's, um, on, you must know about shitty rigs on, um, oh, of course. shitty rigs is brilliant. That's me. You know, you haven't got a proper lighting stand. It's not tall enough. We'll put it on three boxes or balance on the roof of the car. I mean, it doesn't really matter what it looks like. Um, so I'm not snobby about any of that. Um, so. I mean, equally there are, there are tools, there are cameras that make the job so much easier. I mean, the, the cameras now compared to film, you know, if you started on 16 mil, you know, if you don't get the exposure right, even though it was analog, it would go overexposed or your blacks would be so black that you can't lift them. Whereas now with 16 bit raw, you know, color, 15 stops dynamic range. I mean, you could give those cameras to an ape and it would um, probably achieve good results. So the cameras do make it much easier to get nice pictures. That's for sure. Do you, um, is there a specific type of cinematography that goes into nature filming that is um, unique to the art form? Because obviously in narrative, there's a lot of like, um, I guess like lighting and specifically lighting and coloring that, is so variable. But whenever I think of like planet earth or something like that, I always think of these very vibrant, crisp, um, you know, high resolution, for instance, uh, these days, like I remember when planet earth came out on Blu-ray, that was pretty much every, uh, every, um, let's call them plant enthusiasts in college. What's that? Every stoner's dream, wasn't it? Okay. I wasn't going to say that, but thank you. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That, that was, uh, that was big for us at Arizona state. Um, but, uh, yeah. Is, is there kind of room to be a little more, um, creative with your cinematography or is it a lot more like this is kind of what people are expecting? No, I think, I think there's, um, you know, there's a lot of room to say, don't break the rules or do break the rules. But there's, um, no, I mean, there's loads of room for creativity. And as I say, we're working in small teams and it doesn't matter who chips in, you know, it could be the driver you've hired 
says, oh, have you noticed that? It looks really pretty, the light coming through that cobweb there or whatever, um, you know, from here. Because I said, oh, I can't see it from here. And he said, no, have a look from here. Those dewdrops look like jewels. It's amazing. So, um, you know, for one, yeah, for one thing, anybody can input and, um, you know, and have an input and, and be listened to. Whereas I think it, the bigger the production, the more difficult it is. It's the more honed it is, the more pre-planned. There's less room for flexibility. Um, Whereas, yeah, in natural history, because it's smaller crews, you can be more reactive. If the story isn't exactly as it was scripted, you can't script wildlife films, really, you know, because you can't say the lion eats a zebra after hunting it, because if the lion eats a, you know, an eland instead, you think, okay, let's change the story. This is amazing. The eland's the largest antelope in the world. It weighs, you know, a thousand kilograms. Let's change it, the, you know, change the story around. Um, so you have got flexibility for creativity and storytelling. Um, and, you know, cinema, c- cinematography-wise, um, yeah, I suppose working out in the wild, it's quite tricky. You can't, you know, if the sun doesn't come up across the savannah, the African plains, you can't really light that scene. You know, you can't, <laughs> I mean, unless you really restrict the thing that you're looking at, you can't light it. So that's why wildlife films may take a long time to make. You know, generally it's four years in production. Uh, production from concept to you know finished product and generally you have a kind of two and a half seasons to film things so say you're filming um you know a nesting bird if that year you know the nest fails the egg falls out or whatever um if you only have one year to film it you're screwed whereas if you have a second year then you've got a second you know crack at the cherry as it were um equally if you get it the first year then the second year you might be able to enhance it you might think okay we want slightly closer or we want slightly you know, more slow motion of the bird taking off for the first time or, you know, so you can actually build on the sequence. Um, I'm waffling on and on, but um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your no, question yeah. in part. Or not. This, this, uh, trust me, if, if, if anyone's listened to any other uh, versions of this podcast, it's a lot of me trying to rein in my own waffling. So it's <laughs> totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah, that's what they, that's what they're here for. Um, you actually bring up a, a kind of a good, question that I should have asked at the beginning, which is like, how do you go through and structure a film where the actors inherently are not on your team? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, Well, the first thing I'd say that wildlife films for me, are kind of, I mean, it's certainly for the imagery, I'd say it's the easiest imagery out there. You know, if you've got a drama or Hollywood or whatever, you've got to create every aspect of it. You've got to build a set, you've got to light it, you design how big the windows are, what color the curtains are, all that stuff. With wildlife, you know, we, you know, whether you live in a city or not, or, you know, whether you like animals or not, we all have an innate connection to to wildlife. You know, look how many people will choose in their lunch hour to leave their office desk and actually just go and eat their sandwich out in Central Park and under a nice leafy tree or on a nice green grassy, you know, lawn or whatever. Um, That's because we still have that connection with nature. So any beautiful pictures you can have of nature, well, nature is beautiful inherently, um, but pretty much anything you point the camera at can look beautiful because that's what we're connected to. So I think there's, um, and I've completely lost track of what your um, question was. I was saying, how do you you structure the the film when you don't know what's going to be around or... Yeah, so the first thing is that, I mean, visually, uh, we're onto a winner. Yeah. Um, secondly, it's a, you know, it's a big process. I come in, I've kind of got the easiest job. So usually um, somebody will come up with a concept for a film or a series. That will then, you know, 
get some money to develop the concept, say it's within the BBC or within Silverback Films or Plimsoll, whoever it might be, um, then they'll get it to the stage where they'll take it to a broadcaster like, you know, I'll say broadcast, but Netflix, Amazon, whoever, BBC, Nat Geo. Um, they'll say, yeah, we like this idea. Um, how much is it going to cost? And you say, well, we reckon we need four years to make this and we need a team of, you know, 50 people or whatever. Here's the budget. And they know roughly based on previous budgets. Um, and it's only at that stage then that generally I'll get involved and a producer will ring me up, um, you know, and say, look, we've got this sequence of lions hunting or whatever. We know you've done it before. Are you free in July and August? Um, and, you know, how can we how can we up our ante on what we did last time or what you've last seen? And that's the stage that I would come in. Um, but equally, in that, in, and then you go out and you try and fulfil, you know, the story they've come up with. Um, but a lot of it is done from the production side. Um, and then hopefully as a, uh, you know, DOP, we can actually add something and saying, yeah, have you heard of this thing called a GSS or a shot over? I reckon if we can have one of those, then we can actually move with these animals. So you can, again, they say, oh, I hadn't thought of that. I didn't know about that. So again, it's the whole thing kind of develops and evolves. Um, if you go out to film, I keep talking about lions, but say if you go out to film the lions. It's a classic example. And yeah, and they're not hunting in the day. You think, I mean, generally that would be a pretty bad mistake because usually before you even buy a ticket and, you know, book somebody to shoot it in the car and so on, you'll have spoken to the best scientists in the field. You'll look at their track record of, of what's happened. Somebody might say, oh, I've studied lions for 40 years. Yeah, if you come in the full moon, they'll hunt at night. But if you come on the new moon or whichever way around it is, they'll say, you know, pretty much guaranteed they're going to hunt in the day. So you're not just taking a gamble. You are basing it on um, good scientific advice and experience. Um, so it's, I'd say it's pretty rare that you don't get what you went to, to go and get. Because that was um, going to be my second question was like, is there a fixer, you know, for, for the animals themselves? And I guess it would be. Uh, not for the animals, no. I mean, you'll generally work with you know, somebody who's been studying the animals for years. Um, so, I mean, all around the planet, whether you go to Antarctica and penguins or whether it's orca in the ocean or lions or monkeys or whatever, um, there's quite often these long-standing projects where they actually know who the individuals are. Um, you know, they know, I mean, say with gorillas, they know who's whose mother and, you know, he used to be in this group before, so you've already got this kind of family history and this, you know, if they've studied it for 30, 40 years, you already have a really good grounding. And that helps with, and that's usually what the stories are based on um, before you even step out there that, you know, the producer, the writer's got some way of getting this story thread. I don't know if you've seen any of the um, the Dynasty series, which BBC um, oh. produced. Um, I think they're on to series two or series three. I don't know. I haven't shot any of them, but that's an example where they've gone back to look at an individual whether it's a hunting dog or an emperor penguin or whatever, and actually follow that individual for a year and just see truly what happens in the year of that of the life of that animal. And they kind of know certain things are going to happen. It is going to lay an egg or it is going to go swimming and hunting. or um, But you don't know all the subtleties within that. And that's where the clever storytelling comes in. A bit like journalism. You know, you say you're going to follow somebody for a year. You'll discover all sorts of things you'd never have thought up, but you can weave it into a story. Um, waffling on and on, but that's <laughs> kind of the process. Well, you know, a concept, a budget, then you go out and film it, and hopefully you try and fulfil what was in the original concept. But if it changes or morphs, 
sometimes it'll actually change for the better because it's something you couldn't have foreseen. And then one of the biggest parts of it, and this is what makes my stuff look good, is you get an amazing editor who's prepared to sit in the black room. You, you know, I've seen all the sights and sunsets in Africa, and then all that footage will go back. And then the editor will bring another whole layer of creativity um, along with the you know, producer and director. Um, and in my head, when I go back and I deliver the rushes, I can see one or two ways it would go together. So in my mind, I can see a story thread and I know how they'll get their nine minute sequence out of it. You know, you can't go home and say, good luck with that. You know, you have to have some kind of plan as to how you think it would go. But what's interesting is the editor then will take something and say, yeah, but if you tell the story this way, don't tell the punchline at the start or come out with a punchline and then work back from it. And that's where the, I say, I think, many many wildlife films are made in the edit and i don't think the editors get enough credit for that sure you know well, they make my stuff look good which is great yeah well and I'm, that all goes back to i guess i guess it's easy for uh, those of us who aren't in the know to think that like oh you guys just plop down to the camera and wait to see what happens but like any film it all comes down to pre-production where the yeah uh, yeah pre and um, post well, yeah, yeah. Well, once it gets to that point, I was just mean. I meant in the sense of, um, yeah. Anyway, oh, how you got there in the first place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for the the writing, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, what is your uh, sort of data management pipeline on in the field? Because I can imagine, are you like, is it just pre-record all the time, and then you're waiting to pull the trigger? Or are you just constantly rolling and handing off cards to someone or deleting footage? No, no, no. I mean, I, I started on 16 mil. So like, mm -hmm. yeah, I started on a clockwork Bolex. That's how old I am. Where literally you have a hundred foot roller film. I mean, I think they're very much in vogue now. You know, film's kind of coming back. The, so is know, mini TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, but with film, right, I had the 20 I learned, year vintage round. Oh, right. God, yeah. That does make me feel old if TV's vintage. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so a 100-foot roll lasts two and a half minutes of 16 mil. Um, a clockwork Bolex, when you wind it up, when you push roll, you only get 28 seconds, and then the clockwork runs out, then you have to wind it up again. Um, so it was, I think it was a really good discipline to learn on, and I do think it's something that, you know, if you're going through film school or college, I think it's something that everybody should be made to do. I remember what, um, the first company I worked for, they gave me 900 feet of film, so that's 18, what, 21 minutes, and they wanted a seven-minute sequence out of it, behavioural sequence, wildlife sequence. That's a shooting ratio of three to one. So you can't afford to make any technical errors. You can't afford to, you know, click roll when you're just walking and putting the tri camera on the tripod because you've just blown, you know, one of your, uh, you know, part of your ratio. Yeah. Um, so I think having come from film, I think I'm quite disciplined when it comes to rolling on video because I know other people who do just roll and roll and roll and just hand the cards over and think, they can fix it in post, they'll find the shot. But there comes a point if you shoot too much, you know, when somebody's scrolling through that stuff, they'll miss that magic moment. You know, if you've got two hours of a bird on a branch, you're scrubbing through, you know, are you actually gonna miss that subtle bit when it just blows a fly off its shoulder or something? I don't know. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I actually very rarely use pre-roll. Mm. Um, I use pre-roll more in straight documentary where you'll actually get the dialogue because it doesn't matter if you miss the picture, but say somebody says something really funny. If you're on pre-roll, you record it and you've got the funny thing, pick the camera up and you can get everybody laughing. You don't need the person telling you the, the joke or the punchline. Right. Um, 
in natural history, there'll be a few times, particularly if you're shooting super slow motion, because then if you roll and roll and roll, um, or if it's something really unpredictable. Um, but what I like to do is I, I like to really watch the animal. And if you really, really watch, it's like if you're watching a person, you can kind of guess when they're going to go. You know, if you're watching somebody in a bar, say, you know that they're not going to get up and get another drink if they've still got a full pint. Right. So if you're trying to get that moment, don't just, you don't have to have it on pre-roll, just wait till the drink's empty and you know then you're in with the chance it's going to happen. Um, so I think it's much more important to actually really watch and study the subject, whatever it is, whoever it is, um, and use your instinct to push the button. Um, pre-roll, I think you can become slightly disengaged. You might be on your iPhone, oh, bird's taken off, got that. Right. And it's kind of, I think it, you've got to be careful not to become disconnected from what you're filming. And pre-roll can do that. So I think use it wisely just because it's there. Don't use it on every every shot. That's actually an, an, a good point. I think um, going back to the idea of technology is it, it can be easy to disconnect from your work when everything is so automatic. Oh, like my camera's got face tracking autofocus. So really is, which helps me like in certain situations, just focus on my framing, which is great. Yeah. But at the same time, I could just plop it down on a tripod interview, maybe plop it down. You could get to the point where you turn on autofocus, go, all right, go ahead. And you forgot to hit record because you're just so used to everything being automatic, you know? Yeah. I think the other thing is there was a, there was a thing that came in in the last few years where productions were saying, okay, just shoot everything 8k. Um, and basically just shoot it all on one size. And then what we'll do is if you need a close-up, we'll just cut in for the close-up. We can just cut in. We can, you know, choose the bit we want. Um, and the thing with that is misunderstanding um, the whole idea of perspective change. Um, you know, so just cutting into something, you don't get that same feel. You don't get that isolation with focus or, you know, I mean, there's something about being able to change lenses which gives you that different feel and really engages the audience in what you want them to see rather than just and also that's that's leaving a lot to the editor and i'd give editors a, a lot of praise but equally the producer can say oh no actually can you go a little bit on that and think well if you're a cameraman or camera woman why didn't you just go out and shoot it then you know otherwise you know and then you don't need somebody like me you can just have any old technician go out set up the camera just let it roll and we can pick all the close-ups up later so i think we've got to be careful not to you know, you can overuse technology and that would be an example of it, I think. Yeah, the uh, every, even today, the problem is, too, is like uh, on the lower end, the clients will have heard of 4K. It's They're not even producers, right? They just so like, oh, just shoot everything in 4K and we'll figure it out later. And I'm like, no, you want me to figure it out later. Why don't you spend a little extra time and we can figure this out now? Yeah. While we're on set, as it were. Yeah. And again, that whole idea of fix it in post, you know, I mean, we all say it, but you're much better off doing everything in camera, do it, get it right when you want it, rather than having to try and repair something later, because it's always going to be second best to try and fix it afterwards. Well, and the other thing is shooting 4K for an HD deliverable, you might say it's great because it's kind of super sampled HD, uh, but you've got four times as much data. So then some poor sod has to sit down load it onto a hard drive, transcode it, cut it, and then, you know, then switch it all to HD or whatever. I mean, it's kind of a waste of time, really. Um, You know, do as much as you can in camera, do it properly. Um, And and that takes a bit of pre-planning and thought. That's actually funny. Um, 
you just connected a couple things. Uh, I had an interview with Tim Ives um, for people listening like two, three episodes ago. And uh, he was saying that he had a, uh, I don't know if it was a Bolex, but he had the wind up 16 millimeter camera and he used to have people telling him like, oh, there's this really cool effect that you do where everything starts to get really stuttery and fast. Like, how do you do that? He's like, oh, that's, that's the end of the roll because the things, the spring is (laughs) wound out. Um, How do you think that uh, format has changed the way that um, either we watch or create films because you were saying like, Oh, Lawrence of Arabia, you know, you've got this big, beautiful Vista and the little, but that was made, that was only going to be seen on a giant screen in a theater at the time. You know, he was not thinking about the DVD. Um, and now I don't necessarily know if I quite believe that everyone's watching quote unquote, everyone's watching movies on their phones. Cause I've done a couple informal polls and no one seems to be doing that, but tablets and laptops, certainly. Um, has that changed the way that you shoot? Um, not really. I mean, I think, again, I think the story dictates the pace of shooting and the pace of the edit. So if you're taking, if you're telling a nice lyrical story, it will be slow pace, slow moves, all the rest of it. That kind of is dictated by it. If you're shooting a car chase, it's going to be fast cut. It's going to be, you know, intercut, you know, shaking and all the rest of it. Um, so I think that dictates how you shoot it. I think the thing with, if you're watching a movie on your phone, chances are the phone is gonna be here. Um, if you're watching on your 50 inch TV, the TV's gonna be across the side of the room. I think ultimately you're, it's how much of your vision is filled. So actually, if I was younger and I could watch my phone without glasses that close, right, sure. um, you know, that's pretty much the same as a cinema screen. Um, you know, and an iPad here, you know, and a TV there. So actually the, you know, there's like an optimum place to sit in the cinema. If you go to the cinema, where do you try and sit? If you had the choice to sit anywhere, where would you sit? Right, top dead center. Not top, sorry, top. middle middle dead center. Middle. Yeah, yeah. So you don't want to be so far away that the screen's this, because otherwise you've paid all that money and the screen's the size of your TV. Equally, you don't want to be in the front where you're having to physically look around. Yeah. You want to be in the perfect position where your vision is filled. Like it is, you know, here, I can just see, you know, you. it's like recreating the real place, you know. You're kind of, even though my vision is out here, my kind of perception and my concentration is, well, talking to you, it's this screen. Um, so I don't think it really matters whether it's, you know, an IMAX screen or a thing. It's partly about where you are sitting to watch it in terms of how much of your vision is filled with that picture. Mm. Um, that would be my take on it. I'm sure there would be lots of people who would disagree, but that's, um, it, but I'd say that's my take on it. The other, uh, side that I've heard a lot is people saying like, Oh, because it's going to be on a small screen, there's no point like shot selection is going to be, we're going to have to do this all in close-ups. There's no point in doing a nice, beautiful wide of showing the set or anything because it's going to be small. And I think you're probably right. Like it's the, it's the, um, what do you call it? Relative. It's the relative size of the screen. Not necessarily, although it is way easier to see it if it's 30 feet tall. Um, yeah. But that's but the main reason for that is just because um, for your eyes to focus closer, your muscles physically have to stretch the lenses into more of a ball. Mm. So when you're relaxed, this is why we all go to the beach on holiday and feel relaxed, is because your eyes are focused on infinity. They're on the horizon. So actually everything in your body can relax. Even the muscles in your eyes can just think, oh, thank God for that. So I think being in a cinema, it's easier to watch because 30 feet, 
is well it's a lot closer to infinity than you know six inches Fair. so yeah and also your eyes your eyes aren't changing and when you watch a screen this is one of the big things this is why i can't watch 3d so 3d well, movies do not luckily i think me. that's dead I don't think I'm one of, oh yeah. But I mean, once they become holographic or whatever, then yeah. But for me, 3D never works. And somebody, it, it was years before I worked it out, well, somebody explained it to me that I think maybe my brain is too smart, connected with my vision and depth perception and so on. So when you sit in a cinema, your eyes are focused at 30 feet, that focus does not change. And yet here, if I reach for a glass, well, one is, you know, I've got binocular vision, but my eyes are also computing that that glass is 18 inches away. So when I pick it up, it makes sense. So when those bows and arrows come flying out of the screen out of you in the, in the 3D movie, your eyes are converging to join the image of the thing as if it's getting closer, but your focus is still at 30 feet. Your mm. brain is thinking, hang on a minute, it doesn't work for me because if it was getting closer, my eyes would be pulling the focus onto it. Um, so it never is fully real and fully immersive for me. But apparently there's about 10 or 15% of the population who, who have exactly the same feeling and that, that 3D doesn't work. Yeah. Um, don't know how we got onto that, but I'm, yeah, I'm waffling. It's good it's not no, you're this, doing it. <laughs> this is, a, like I said at the beginning, this is a very uh, casual conversation. Um, but that does bring up an issue. You, you mentioned a couple things about like eyesight and stuff. Is there anything that working in, in nature... Um, cinematography has taught you about your craft, you know, obviously knowing how eyes work is definitely something that I don't think is in the uh, American cinematographer manual or the British cinematographer yeah. manual. Um, I, again, I think what comes with experience is understanding all these things. So like you can learn technique and you can learn all the technical stuff and then it's how you apply it to make it credible on a screen. And of course, one thing we've got with a screen, it's two dimensions. It's two-dimensional, hence people trying to do 3D. Um, and yet our lives are three-dimensional. So when you move, I've got change of parallax between the screen and the back of the room. When you're driving along in the street, you've got parallax between the lamppost and the post box and the shop front and the streets you pass. And that's how you kind of add to your depth perception as well as how far you're focused. Um, so what we have to try and do cinematic, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it's too long a word. I hate um, that word. Are you, are you trying to say cinematographically? Because I don't think yeah, that's a real word. No, I think someone you know, made that up recently. I've been, and I've been practicing that for 37 years. I still can't say it. But um, no, so what we have to do is use techniques to try and um, rebuild how you see, you know, the real world. Hence, like here, I'm sat in my room. I'm looking around. I can see the ceiling, the light bulbs, this out that, the window. But if suddenly I saw a fly land on the window, it's almost like my width of vision isn't changing, but it's almost like I suddenly put a 600 mil lens on. I'm thinking, God, it's a blue bottle. It's, it's only got five legs. So my brain has done that lens change for me because it's concentrating on the thing that's important. But I, actually the lens is the same. So what we, but that's because I've got binocular vision and my brain's doing that work. But what we have to do to put that onto a screen is you can't, well, the producer would like to shoot 8K and then just take that close up, but sure. um, which is kind of the same thing our brain's doing. But actually, the simplest way to do it is to change the lens, to change your idea of perception. How did you get involved in the David Attenborough film? Um, well, I've been very lucky. So I've worked with David on and off for the last 32 years. Right. I've worked on, I don't know, 18 of his series um, from... 
I think, well, the first series I worked on was uh, The Living Planet, and I was a tea boy, and I swept floors, and I helped, you know, pour dust down sets and, you know, this, that, and the other. So that was my, you know, my input on that. And in fact, if you, if anybody's got The Living Planet making of book, I don't know, somewhere in there, you'll see me with hair holding a dustpan and brush, mm-hmm. um, or in some, I think we were trying to re- recreate an underwater lava flow. It, they, we built this set in the studio to take the, the viewer on a journey from the deepest point of the ocean, which was the Marianas Trench, um, up to the Hawaiian Ridge where the, you know, suddenly pokes up out of the ocean. And there you find David on the beach with a coconut or something. Um, but obviously you, back then you couldn't do that journey for real. So that was done with a model. In fact, in the finished film, there's very little of it, but there is a shot of me in the making of book. Um, so having worked with him for years and years and years, um, and I've got a very good working relationship with him, um, I suppose when this film came around, which is his witness statement of, of you know what he's seen on the planet and the changes and how it was, how we've screwed it up basically, but how we can fix it. Um, I suppose the producer wanted somebody who's, um, the director wanted somebody who's, who David's comfortable with, who he can trust, who would just talk openly with. Um, and I was asked to do it, which is great. Yeah, it's definitely a, uh, the, the, how we've screwed up the planet is something that's kind of, uh, near to me because I've, I've been a lifelong snowboarder. And the one thing that uh, climate change will affect is whether or not I'm allowed to do the one thing speaking. You know, I do enjoy the beach, but the uh, like you were saying about the the focusing at infinity, there is something yeah. transcendent about standing on top of a mountain that is full of snow. It's dead quiet and you're just looking. I have a beautiful shot in uh, Steamboat of, of Colorado of um you know, big snowy peak Very, you know, you're waist deep in powder and there's just forest for probably a hundred miles. Like you, that's all you can see is just white and green forest and you cannot, uh, no photo, no video can replicate that feeling. And, uh, it's a very important, uh, topic (laughs) to cover. But I think you'll find that a lot of people relate to exactly what you've just described. And that goes back to what I said, which is our innate connection with the natural world. Mm. Um, there's something relaxing about having your eyes on infinity. There's something nice about pristine nature. You imagine if that had a row of pylons through it and a couple of, you know, there's a highway running up through it, which leads your eye through, it wouldn't be the same. So the fact that it's pristine and as you say, you know, forest to the horizon or whatever, um, there's something really nice about that. There's something really, you know, that we connect to. Um, no, so it's really nice that you say that because I, I can totally relate to that feeling um the other thing is if it's that warm that the snow's melting it's going to be too hot to sit on the beach yeah oh Um, yeah 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 so we i mean we there's no we all agree i think well apart from the odd orange um presidents that might (laughs) come along um i think we all agree that climate change is a thing and and thank god um things are happening about it there's we've got the g7 summit this week um and one of the big agenda things in fact um I, i when does this when does this uh, uh, next podcast? week actually yeah so i think i think i'm allowed to say but david attenborough is going to be addressing um oh, wow. g7 summit not in person um but i think it's basically it's a really hot topic uh, to sorry uh, <laughs> use the pun but um you know we all need to pull together and actually do something about it and the it's the developing nations that are probably causing the most harm and need to make the biggest change um we've got to do it and we've got to do it very soon 
Well, and it's it's uh, snowboarding. That's for sure. Or your kids when you have them, if you have them, uh, won't be snowboarding. That's for sure. Yeah, it's. I think that's the the big key, as you were saying. Like we can all agree that climate change is a thing. I think that's the insidious thing. Is like everyone knows it's a thing, but those who don't want to do anything about it are more concerned about their pocketbook or how uh, it'll look if they change something or if someone someone will get mad at me if I enact some whatever it may be legislation or something like that to keep uh, keep these changes in in as much check as they can be at this point. Yeah. And the thing is, it shouldn't be a, it shouldn't be a political issue. It's kind of common sense. It's like take smoking, you know, you know, if, if you smoke, you know, it does you harm. If you drink too much, you know, you do it, it's doing you harm. So if you chop too many trees down, we know it's doing harm. If we chuck too much plastic in the ocean, we know it's doing harm. Yeah. It might be quite difficult to change, but we have to like the smoking thing. If the doctor says to you, if you don't quit tomorrow, you're going to be dead next year. This is, it's kind of the same message, but it's about the planet. And it's not just one individual who's being affected. It's every single one of us. Um, you know, we, we've just got to do it. You know, humans are supposed to be the most intelligent species on the planet. Um, but, you know, we all agree to disagree. I mean, it's crazy. We, we know what the problems are. We have all the solutions. We just have to get on and do it. And yes, it's going to cost money. Money's nothing. When you're dead, what's the point of having a billion pounds in the bank when you're dead? Yeah. Well, and we invented money. We didn't invent trees. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, hopefully something will happen. And as I say, going back to David Attenborough, Life on Our Planet, I think it's probably the most important um, film I'll ever work on. Um, it's a very important, strong message. It's coming from a man with integrity. It's a coming from a man who's knowledgeable. It's a personal story. Um, it's got genuine history to it. So he's not just reading saying, oh, it used to be like this. He's seen it. And he's seen how we've screwed it up. And equally, he's a very, very smart man. He's never stood up against this until he could categorically, uh, you know, say for sure that, you know, we've created climate change. It is a thing. It's not a natural cycle um, because he didn't want to look a fool standing up in a lecture hall and actually have one person call him out and prove him wrong. Right. Um, and that's why that film has su- that man and that film has such integrity. There's uh, that actually brings a question I was going to ask up, which is, you know, very few of us get to meet. um, I don't want to use the word powerful because that's the wrong word, but like uh, people like David who are top of their craft, um, incredibly intelligent, you know, uh, the sort of Wayne Gretzky of, of science kind of people to use a strange (laughs) analogy. Um, What has he taught you about, just your day-to-day life like what what type of behaviors does he model that you've taken in uh on your day-to-day journey through existence um if i could absorb 10 percent of his how he behaves on this planet i'll, I'll be a hundred percent a better person than i was to start with um he, he's got no airs or graces he's not a celebrity he hates the word celebrity uh, he's got no demands. He doesn't demand a big Winnebago or a limo take him to the airport or first-class travel. None of that. If you're sleeping in a tent, he'll sleep in a tent. If you're traveling in the back of a pickup, you know, until like mid to late 80s, he would jump in the back of the pickup. You know, he's part of a team. Um, he would never demand any of that, which is re- it's really, really humbling, actually, that, that a man of his stature, you know, he's good friends with the Queen. He'd have tea with the Queen you know, once a month or whatever. And yet 
he's quite happy to travel in the back of the pickup with the rest mm. of us. Um, you know, he always used to travel economy until I think it was actually the private life of plants. So when he was late 60s, early 70s, no, maybe early 70s, mid 70s, where the BBC said, right, David, you are traveling in business class. When you arrive there, you're only there for three days. We want you looking good on camera. We can't have you, you know, not sleeping, squashed into an economy seat by the toilets. But uh, he never demanded it. The, you know, it was kind of offered to him. And, um, you know, thankfully he accepted it. But um, he, he's never put any demands on things like that. Equally, he's never done a commercial in his life. I remember him once saying, I can't remember what it was. He was offered a million pounds or five million pounds, some ridiculous amount of money. Jeez. This is years ago to do a commercial for a certain type of lawnmower. And I remember him telling me this, and I said, Christ, David, that's amazing. I said, do you take the money? Why don't you do it? And he said, well, no, it'd be wrong. You know, they're, they're obviously giving me the money and employing me because I've had influence and people listen to me. Uh, he said, I don't know. The first thing about lawnmowers, it would be totally wrong for me to say this lawn, you know, buy this lawnmower because it's the best. You know, I don't know that over this lawnmower. Um, so he turned it down. I said, yeah, but why don't you just take the money and just give it to charity? And he said, no, because I'll be misleading all those people who go out and buy that lawnmower and then, you imagine a week down the line, all those lawnmowers break down. They'd be ringing him up saying, David, you said buy that lawnmower. It's the best one, but, you know, it's broken within a week. No, so he's a, a man of real integrity, real integrity. And I'd say there's very, very few people on the planet like that. So um, I haven't quite got that integrity because I have done a commercial too. <laughs> but I uh, failed already. But, um, yeah, no, he's, he's a very humble man and very, very smart. That's awesome. Yeah, Uh we're kind of coming up on time, although I wish we could part to this uh, soon because I'm thoroughly enjoying this. Uh, but I always like to wrap up with sort of the same two questions. First of which, um, in your cinematography career, can you point to maybe it's a piece of equipment or maybe it's a uh, style change or a life change that you can say most appreciably off the top of your head, doesn't have to be number one, most appreciably changed your career path? You know, some people said, oh, this literally is the day I bought a light meter. Some people said, like, it was uh, the day I chose to start being kind on set. <laughs> you know, it can be a good, good pair of shoes. A lot of documentarians said a good pair of shoes. Give me 10 seconds. Don't go yep. away. I'll show you. I think the thing that actually influenced my life more than anything is this very camera. Is that a brownie? So it's a box brownie, yeah. Uh, film camera takes 12 pictures, waist level viewfinder landscape you know landscape or portrait um and it was when i was nine i was lent this camera by my aunt and i went to uh, on a school trip to a zoo and i took 12 pictures you know two weeks later you pick it up from the chemist and you thumb through the pictures and the first one was i think the front door and there was you know a distant elephant and a giraffe and the fourth or fifth picture on that roll uh, was an orca almost completely out of the water touching its nose on a beach ball held by a um uh, held by a keeper and I remember showing it to my mum when we picked up I said I told you look there was this giant fish leapt out of the water look at it there it is and I can show you that photograph you know 30 40 50 years later and you can see that split second moment when I push the button on that thing and I think for me that was a pivotal moment of the of the power of photography so I didn't realize this really I say until I, I wrote this book a few years ago but I, you know you try and piece your life together and um, I didn't realize that was probably the pivotal moment when I made that connection. And the weird thing is, is the subject happened to be, you know, an orca, an animal. Uh, we know now that orca should not be in captivity. They're 
smart sentient animals and that thankfully is changing um but equally I, just the power of photography i can show you that split second moment um so that is probably the bit of equipment that has more has had more influence on my career and my life choices and so on than anything else that's that's beautiful uh that i'll sh- i'll show you after uh the second question is is there anything that you'd like to promote obviously besides the film uh you, you said you wrote a book what did you say it was called uh it's uh, called journeys in the Lo- in the wild the secret life of a cameraman um it's out on hardback paperback um audiobook if you can't read or if you like to hear me try an american accent or australian accent because <laughs> there are some of those in there which is embarrassing but um uh, yeah, so I'm quite proud of it. Um, it'll give, if you're interested in this as a career, it's got all aspects. It's not all technical. In fact, very little bit's technical. Um, it's mostly about me making mistakes. And hopefully if you do want to follow a career in this, it'll give you some pointers as to not what to do, but equally, uh, you know, what to do and, and the, you know, some of the trips and falls along the way. Um, but yeah, if I can promote that. Um, yeah, and equally the whole Instagram thing, at the Gavin Thurston because somebody stole Gavin Thurston. Uh, I don't course. know who they are, but yeah. Um, but yeah, um, that's it really. Um, yeah, Excellent. and hopefully it'll help somebody, you know, if it helps somebody launch their career or if it helps put them off and they don't waste 10 years, you know, choosing the wrong career, um, all the better. Yeah, no, and I've said this a million times on this podcast, but mistakes, we should all be striving to make as many mistakes as possible. Check over easy. Yeah. He shot them, the Amazon show. And he was saying that, uh, you, you make, what do you say? Like 130,000 mistakes in your life. And, uh, he's only up to like 85. So, you know, he's, he's in his, <laughs> that's a mistake saying that. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's like every day you open up the door and you go, here's today's mistakes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for uh, spending that time with me. I really appreciate that. And uh, thanks for making the film. Like we said, it's incredibly important. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can have you back on. Thank you. And I should just finally promote the film. If you haven't seen it, Netflix, David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. Um, it's only 84 minutes of your life, um, but hopefully it will um, it will make you think and it might make you change something. I'm not suggesting it should, but it might. So, but thank you very much for your time and inviting me on this. And um, I hope one listener gets something out of it. Yeah. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. Our theme song is written and performed by Mark Pelly, and the Ethidar Mapbox logo was designed by Nate Truax of Truax Branding Company. You can read or watch the podcast you've just heard by going to ProVideoCoalition.com or YouTube.com slash Owlbot, respectively. And as always... Thanks for listening.